There's a, a question that goes through my mind every once in a while, and I'm going to guess it goes through your mind too. And that question is simply, where is God? Where is God? I think that the Hebrews were wondering that when the Egyptians turned against them. You know, they had come to live there after Joseph had gone ahead and the Pharaoh had appreciated Joseph's leadership in Egypt so much, he said, bring your whole family down here. And they settled in the land of Goshen, and they began to multiply, and life was good. And then we read this in Exodus. It says, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And for hundreds of years, they're forced to be slaves. Cruel taskmasters placed over their lives. They had to have wondered God, what are you doing? Where are you? Especially in light of the fact that God had made a promise to them, to their forefather Abraham, that through them all the nations would be blessed, that through them would come one who would be a great deliverer. That promise was given in Genesis chapter 12. It went like this. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It had to have felt like God had turned that promise around. That really what he was doing was cursing his people and blessing their enemies. And when that happens, you just have to wonder, God, where are you? To make matters worse, despite the fact they were in slavery, Israel kept multiplying and growing, becoming like a mini nation within the nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh got so frustrated with it, eventually he gave an order. He said it was the responsibility of every Egyptian to take any newborn male Hebrew boy and throw him into the Nile River to drown or to be eaten by the crocodiles. Now, can you imagine? I mean, they're facing the annihilation of their own people if there are not going to be any male heirs that are allowed to live. Where is God? There's a couple in those days. The husband's name was Amram, and the wife's name was Joshebed. They had two children. They had an older son named Aaron, and then they had a daughter named Miriam. And they had a growing problem. You see, Joshebed was pregnant. 
which is good news usually, but this was dangerous. For the little girl, no problem, because Pharaoh's decree about the death of children had only to do with Hebrew males. But if it's a boy, well, they're in big trouble. So what do you do for the nine months that you're pregnant? I'm going to guess that Joshua Ben wore, wore large clothes to hide her baby bump, as they say. Imagine they sat down with Aaron and Miriam and said, we have a family secret. Do you know what that means? Shh, don't tell anybody. The mom's pregnant. Then the big day came. Nine months later, out came the baby, and it was a boy. On the one hand, a, a, a time to celebrate rejoice, but on the other hand, fear and trepidation. What's going to happen? You know, every parent and grandparent, when their, when their child or grandchild is born, believes that that child at that moment is the cutest baby that was ever born on earth. Any of you relate to that? If you have your children sitting with you and didn't raise your hand, you are in big trouble. <laughs> Even if you think your child's ugly, you still say it's the most beautiful child you've ever seen, right? Well, it was no different than Moses, except the fact that Moses was truly, truly, truly special, unusual child. I mean, here's what it says in Exodus chapter 2 about it. It says, the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. You say, well, what's the big deal? Every mother thinks her baby is special. But look what happens. You go to the New Testament, and in Acts chapter 7, it says, at that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. And if that's not enough, in the book of Hebrews, it goes on and says it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born, they saw that God had given them an unusual child. And they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. Now, why are they not afraid to, obey the, uh, to disobey the king's command? Because they saw that God had given them an unusual child. So I think what that means is there was kind of an anointing on, on this little boy's life, and they must have sensed somehow this child has something to do with our situation. And perhaps God's response. I don't have a verse that explicitly says that, but I would think the context intends that. Have you ever tried to keep a three-month-old, a six-month-old, a one-year-old quiet? That is the impossible mission. Hey, Amram, did I hear a baby crying in your house at 3 a.m. this morning? What do you do? Yoshebed, the mother, came up with a plan, hide the baby part of the day. The text doesn't tell us specifically that she had a conversation with her, da her daughter, but I can imagine it would have happened. We do know they made a basket. We know that they pitched it with tar and uh, uh, they covered it with tar and pitched to make it waterproof. But I imagine Yoshebed saying to Miriam as they were weaving the basket together, we're going to place your little baby brother in this and then we're going to set him in a place that no Egyptian would ever think to look for a Hebrew baby boy, we're going to put him in the Nile River amongst the reeds. The very place they're throwing our sons to death. We'll hide him there. Nobody will look for him there. And Miriam has a huge responsibility. Miriam is to keep vigilance, to keep watch 
over her baby brother for however long he's being hidden there each day. Now, Miriam is probably around 12 years of age, maybe even younger. That is quite a responsibility to put on the shoulders of this very young girl. But there she was, hiding within the reeds, keeping her eye on the basket. When the most unexpected thing happened, the daughter of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, the princess of Pharaoh, decides that day to come down and take a dip in the Nile River. Of all places, why here, why now? And to match that, the baby starts to cry. One of the handmaids of the princess gets the basket, brings it to the princess who opens it up, and there's the baby boy. Imagine this, the baby boy is now in the hands of the daughter of the most powerful man who has commanded that every Hebrew male baby be thrown into the river. It is just one easy drop into the Nile, and her brother's dead. Where is God? Where is God? Sometimes I look and listen to what's going on in our culture, on the news, in the Middle East, in our own country. There's so much hatred. There's so much immorality. There's so much injustice. There's so much violence, so much evil. I just wonder, God, where are you? Feels like evil is winning. Good and God is losing. And sometimes it gets more personal, doesn't it? Sometimes stuff happens in our life. Failure, loneliness, loss, abandonment, abuse, on the list goes. You call out to God and you say, God, I'm in this situation. I need your help. I need your healing. I need your wisdom. I need your guidance. And it feels like God's not listening. Nothing's changing. It's getting worse instead of better. I don't know about you, but when I have those moments, and I do, where I wonder, sometimes out loud, where is God? I feel a bit ashamed. As a follower of Christ and as a, as a spiritual leader, as a pastor. But then I'm always thankful for the Word of God because when I go to the Word of God, I run into characters like David. Have you ever read some of David's Psalms? I mean, you read those Psalms, it's like David feels like God has totally forsaken him. Or Jeremiah the prophet who gets so fed up, frustrated, he wants to quit, wants to throw the towel in. In fact, at one place he says, I'm just not going to preach anymore. I feel like that some days. Or Habakkuk the prophet who simply says, how long must I keep calling out to you, O Lord, and you do not listen, you do not respond. Even Jesus on the cross, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We all have those moments. If you have those moments, listen, you're in esteemed company. Where is God? Maybe you're wondering that right now. Where is is God. It was even hard to get to church. Where is God? He was right there. You say, what do you mean he was right there? Well, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Exodus. Let me show you where he was in the story, and you'll be able to see where he is in the story of your life as well. Exodus, please, chapter 2. 
Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. It says there, Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for as she explained, I lifted him out of the water. If you were to ask me where is God in the story, I would point to two places. I would say, first of all, God is at work in the heart of that young princess. Somehow God's either using the anointing on that baby to move the heart of the princess and put pity in her heart for him, or God has already been at work in her life long before this. And maybe, maybe she sees the injustice of all these little baby boys being drowned at her father's orders. Maybe she disagrees with her father and she sees now an opportunity to kind of get even or an opportunity to speak out against what he's doing by rescuing this baby. All I know is that God's at work in the background. But the second place that I see God at work, and I would say God at work the most in this story, is in the heart of that 12-year-old or younger sister named Miriam. Her words and her actions are absolutely brilliant and courageous. Listen to what she says again. It's a question. She says, should I, she, it says she approached the princess and says, should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Look at how the princess responds. Yes, do. It's brilliant and courageous in that the way she puts it to the princess is to make it feel like it's the princess's own idea. Almost like she's saying, I know what you're thinking. You are probably thinking, oh, I need a wet nurse because I, I can't, I can't uh, feed this child. So I'll, are you looking for that wet nurse? I'll go get it. Oh, yeah, yeah, good idea. Go get one. But I look at the story and I see something else that's of absolute brilliance and courage. Do you realize that in a short amount of time, I don't know how many minutes it was, Miriam, this child, has come up with this ingenious plan. She's put it all together. I see pity on her face. I'm going to approach her. Can make it feel like it's her idea. You probably need a wet nurse. I happen to know some wet nurses in in Israel, in the community, let me go get one. I'm getting my mom. By the way, wouldn't you just love to see that interaction between daughter and mother? The mother thinks she has an ingenious plan, putting the child in the Nile River. The plan's been blown, right, because the princess finds it. Now the daughter shows up and says, Mom, let me tell you about my plan. The baby's been discovered. Relax, chill out, all right? 
I've got it all worked out. I'm going to take you there. I want you to pretend like you've never seen a child before because I said I'll go find a wet nurse. That's you, okay? So you just show up, kind of play dumb, all right? And then let the princess tell you what she wants to do. And when she does come and does play dumb and the princess looks at her and says, take this child and feed the child and care for the child, I'll pay you. I'm telling you, what a plan, huh? How many of you mothers would like to be paid for raising your own kids? <laughs> wow. And a 12-year-old or younger to boot out of the mouth of babes, uncommon courage, uncommon faith, uncommon wisdom. Look at her poise. Look at the poise of this young girl in the passage. You don't read about, sense any fear, any nervousness, any intrepidation, any hesitation. You just sense there's this calmness, this confidence, this boldness, like it's a done deal. What causes such uncommon courage? Where does it come from? Came from the same place, caused by the same thing that another Miriam exemplifies for us. Talking about the Miriam of the New Testament, who lived at a time when there was a great oppressor, not the Egyptians, the Romans, not Pharaoh, but Caesar. If you've gone to Nazareth, this out-of-the-way little place on a hill, big hill, and said, is, is Mary here? They would all look at you with blank stares. Mary's a transliteration of the, of the real name. If you said, is Miriam here? They would say, oh, sure. They would introduce you probably to four or five Miriams, popular name. But there was a Miriam in Nazareth to whom God sent his angel Gabriel to speak to. And Gabriel said to this Miriam, God has chosen you to deliver the deliverer, to give birth to the Messiah, the long-expected one, the fulfillment of the promise to Abram, the one through whom all the nations will be blessed, the one through whom all peoples will be reconciled, who will defeat the greatest power of all, sin and death, Satan himself. And the only thing Miriam said was, well, how can this be? I had not known a man. The angel said, that's okay. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. It will be by miracle. You will give birth, though a virgin, because the Holy Spirit will conceive the child in your womb. And then Miriam responds with the most simple gesture of faith. She said, okay, I'm your servant. I'm your maidservant. Have my body, use my life, bring forth the deliverer. What is it that Miriam in the Old Testament, who's called to deliver the deliverer Moses from death in the Nile, what is it that she and Miriam in the New Testament who's called to bring forth the deliverer who will deliver us from sin, what is it they have in common? Here's what I wrote down in my notes this week. I wrote down that God chose them. Let's just stop there. God chose them. You know, God chooses us. We don't choose him. Therefore, if God chooses us, that means that he can do with our lives as he wishes. So God chose them to effect his plan through them. God had a purpose for their lives. God had a plan to exercise through them. It didn't matter if they were teenagers. God had a plan to use them, a plan to use them to deliver the deliverer, and they cooperated without regard to their own well-being. Miriam doesn't in the Old Testament, doesn't care about herself. She's got to rescue her baby brother. She just goes right out and approaches the princess. She has no thought about what may happen to her. 
Miriam, the New Testament. The mother of our Lord Jesus. You know, it doesn't matter to her that she's got to explain this to Joseph. He's going to want to divorce her. That she'll be made fun of by her own family. It'll be scandalous. That she will eventually suffer the, the pain and the heartache of watching her son crucified. She's just there to cooperate. Do you know that you've been chosen? There's a passage of scripture over in Galatians chapter 4. Let me just draw your attention to it for a moment. Let me read it to you. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, but when the right time came, that's always interesting, isn't it? When the right time came, God sent Moses. When the right time came, God sent his son. When the right time came, God chose you. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Whenever I'm in Israel, and especially if I'm walking around Jerusalem, I hear little kids running around going, Abba, Abba. And I just, I just, I think of that and I think of the scriptures and I realize they're calling daddy, daddy, because it's the most endearing term for daddy. God says, I sent my son to intervene on your behalf so that you could call me daddy, so we could have this intimate relationship. He says, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Do you know that about yourself? You have been made his heir. God chose you, folks. Listen, God chose you. If you're a believer, you know God chose you. He's chosen you for a means, for a purpose. It is not your job. It's not your family. It's not anything else in this life. God chose you to deliver the deliverer to your friends, your neighbors, your family, to strangers, people here, near, and far. And he wants you to deliver the deliverer no matter what it means for your life, no matter what it costs you, no matter what your situation is. And it takes uncommon courage and faith to live that way. Let me tell you another story that kind of solidifies this, at least it does for me. It's about another young girl, not Miriam. This one's name was Ruby Bridges. Maybe you know Ruby's story. Ruby was born in New Orleans. She was born at a time when racism was at its worst, and I'm not suggesting that racism is gone. It's still unfortunately alive and it's all of our responsibility to try to eradicate it. But it was at its worst and Ruby was born to a poor family. Barely had enough food to eat. But they truly loved God. They raised Ruby to love God. They went to church faithfully. And they lived at a time when white children went to white schools and black children like Ruby had to go to black schools. And the white children were afforded far more opportunities and a better education than the black children were. Even though it was against the law, it was still tolerated in the South. And then one day a judge made a ruling and the judge's ruling was that a select few black children would go to a white school. And one of those children was Ruby Bridges. She was only six years old, and I don't want you to forget that. She was only six years old. 
When her parents realized she'd been chosen, they prayed all the harder for her at home and at church that God would strengthen her, that God would make her courageous because it was not going to be easy. It was going to be hard. And they knew that she was going to pave the way for other black children as well. When the day came for her to go to school, U.S. federal marshals escorted her into the elementary school. White parents refused to send their children to school where a black child was going to attend. And a white mob formed outside the perimeter and yelled insults at her and threats toward her as the marshals ushered her in. She's the only child in the classroom. But she loved school and she loved learning. And folks, if you don't know this, this went on for many, many weeks. Teacher would watch Ruby being marched in every day, hearing all the threats and all the profanity and all the insults. But one day, while the teacher was watching, she saw Ruby stop in front of the crowds. She watched the window and she could see Ruby's lips moving but could not make out what she was saying to the crowds. So when Ruby got into the classroom, the teacher said, what did you say to those people? Ruby said, I was not talking to the people. I was talking to God. See, every day, Ruby, the six-year-old, on her own, a block or two away from the school before the crowds, would stop and say a prayer. She forgot that day until she got in front of the crowds and then she remembered. And so she just simply stopped in front of them to talk to God. What did she say to God? This is, this is her prayer. Please, God, forgive those people. Because if they say those bad things, they don't know what they are doing. So you could forgive them just like you did those folks a long time ago when they said terrible things about you when you died on the cross to save us. Uncommon courage. Uncommon faith from a six-year-old who believes that God has chosen her who understands that no matter what anybody says, she is truly free in Christ, and who realizes that God has called her, regardless of her situation, to deliver the deliverer, oh, that we could have the faith and the courage of Ruby Bridges for our everyday lives. Do you? God has chosen us. God has called us. Are we willing to exercise uncommon courage in delivering a deliverer? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you this day. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to become courageous people by simply letting you live your life through us. Lord, you called us to use us to deliver the deliverer. Forgive us for the times, Lord, that we get 
out of focus when it becomes about us and not about you. Forgive us, Lord, when we look at our circumstances and think to ourselves, Lord, that in bad circumstances you can't use us because, Lord, it seems to me when I read your word that it's in the worst circumstances that you use us the most. If we're willing to trust you, that you're working your plan through our lives. Thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus. How he modeled that for us.